Welcome to this episode of the award-winning Best of the Left podcast, in which we shall take a look at the current state and deep context for why our immigration and asylum systems are broken, and why our policies have made it worse rather than better, all while stoking anti-immigrant hatred. Clips today are from Vox, Last Week Tonight, the PBS NewsHour, Democracy Now!, Amanpour and Company, Latino Rebels Radio, In the Thick, and the David McWilliams podcast, with additional members-only clips from Make Me Smart and the law firm of Momita Raman. Before the 1990s, undocumented immigration into the U.S. looked very different. For one, it was usually temporary. People used to go back and forth across the border. They would go north and, you know, for the harvest, and they would earn some money, and they would go back to Mexico. And if they wanted to come live permanently in the U.S., there were a few legal channels, but not many. If they married an American citizen, they could get lawful status. Or if maybe their brother was a citizen already, he could sponsor them. Or an employer could. And these could be done after they were already living in the U.S. undocumented. Before 1996, the threat of deportation was relatively low. People were commonly deported for committing a crime. And it was mostly limited to major crimes, like murder or trafficking. But IRA-IRA, together with other 1996 laws, drastically expanded deportable crimes to even minor infractions, like shoplifting. It was also retroactive. So say it's 1976, and someone is caught stealing some albums from the mall. They wouldn't be deported. Over the next 20 years, they never commit another crime. But after 1996, they could be deported because of that old misdemeanor. And not just if they were currently undocumented. This applied to immigrants with lawful status, too. And previously, an immigration judge could decide if the deportation should even take place. Now things were a little more automatic. Ignoring the fact that those deportations would be extremely harmful to U.S. citizen children or or spouses. Deportations skyrocketed. And IRA-IRA created the framework for future laws that further expanded reasons people could be deported, especially after 9-11. But IRA-IRA also made another huge fundamental change in the U.S. immigration system. One of the aspects of the 1996 law that is particularly strict and I think in many respects inhumane is the so-called three- and ten-year bars. Those three- and ten-year bars made these legal pathways nearly impossible to obtain. They work like this. Anyone who's been undocumented in the U.S. for six months and wants to gain legal status first has to leave the country and be barred from returning for three years. If they've been undocumented for more than a year, they're barred for 10 years. So if they want to get lawful status through a job, they first have to leave the U.S. for 10 years. Or through their brother, leave for 10 years. Or through their spouse, leave for 10 years. It's family separation by uh, another name. The bars were intended to try to essentially create uh, punishments that were so severe to deter people essentially from coming here. But as we've seen with many other deterrence-based policies, the, the practical effect is very, is very different. Instead, it incentivized people to stay in the U.S. undocumented. Before IRA-IRA, Mexican immigrants who came to the U.S. unlawfully were about 50% likely to return to Mexico within a year. But after 1996, more people started staying in the U.S. There were around 5 million undocumented immigrants living at the U.S. before IRA-IRA. 
Today, it's at least double that. And we are somehow surprised by this outcome. This is of our own doing. Laws like IRA-IRA shaped the way the U.S. focuses on immigration enforcement as a deterrent. But really, it proved that stronger enforcement doesn't actually stop undocumented immigration. These laws or the politics in the 90s didn't really change the reasons why people come to the United States. Today, views on immigrants are very different than they were in the 1990s. Most Americans now see them as a strength, not a burden. But the laws created here haven't changed. Requirements and standards that were created decades ago that that aren't responsive to our needs as a nation, they certainly aren't responsive to to the needs of, of immigrant populations. The idea that if we only had more guns, if we only built a higher wall, that we'd solve all the problems. I think we learned from 96 that's not the way it works. It's not that simple. There is a lot happening at the border right now. The number of migrant encounters there, which was rising before Biden came into office, reached a record high last year. Now, that has happened for a number of reasons, including that we're coming out of a global pandemic and multiple countries from Haiti to Venezuela to Ukraine are in crisis right now. So there's a high number of people forced to flee their homes. Plus, some asylum seekers may understandably have been encouraged by Biden's rhetoric on the campaign trail, which was notably different than his opponents. Look, I can't only imagine what it's like to see someone in your family deported. That's right. I can only imagine what that's like. And I, to me, it's all about family. Beginning, middle, and end, it's about family. That's not going to happen in my administration. The idea you can't even seek asylum on American soil? Can't even seek asylum on American soil? When did that happen? Trump, it's wrong. You're going to change that? Yes, I am. Promises like that are why we cited Biden's potential to undo Trump's damage on immigration as a key reason to vote for him just a week before the election. Now, did we make the difference? Who can say? Nurses are the real heroes. Unfortunately, though, when it comes to the southern border, Biden has disappointed in a lot of ways. But it is not because he's opened up the country to an invasion. It's actually in many ways the opposite. Many migrants, including asylum seekers, are finding it impossible to access this country through our ports of entry. And the conditions that they're facing are dire. In many border cities, shelters and detention centres are reportedly near capacity, with the director of one of them saying, every day I turn away at least 10 families with children. And just last month, at least 40 people died when a migrant centre caught fire. And frustratingly, a lot of this has been exacerbated by US policies that are well within Biden's power to remedy, and yet... He hasn't. And that is basically what our story is about tonight. It's about what Biden promised to do, what he has and hasn't done, and how his latest efforts to fix things might actually make them worse. And first, let's acknowledge it is impossible to assess what Biden has done at the border without looking at what he inherited. Trump campaigned on high-octane xenophobia, and his policies reflected that, from large-scale family separation to attacking DACA to his so-called remain-in-Mexico policy, which led to massive encampments of would-be asylum seekers south of the border. And Trump approached all of it with his signature clarity. The immigration laws are horrible. We're doing an incredible job. We're doing a record-breaking job, but we have bad laws. You know, when you have bad laws, you can do good, but you can do a lot better if you had good laws. Okay. I mean, that is total gibberish. But if you look at what he's saying closely there, you'll find it's also, and this is true, a haiku. (laughs) I'm I'm kidding, it absolutely isn't. But wouldn't it be great if it was? 
if that buffoon was capable of accidental beauty, but it's not, and he isn't, so we're back to square one. Now, to Biden's credit, he created a task force to reunify the separated families, he strengthened protections around DACA, and he suspended the Remain in Mexico policy. And yet, there remain huge numbers of people stuck just south of the border in camps that look an awful lot like the ones that were there during Trump. And a significant reason for that has to do with a policy called Title 42, which allows the US to kick migrants out of the country with shocking ease. And we've talked about it before, but just as a refresher, it's not actually an immigration law at all. It is an arcane public health order aimed at preventing the spread of communicable diseases. The Trump administration implemented it in March of 2020, invoking it as a safety precaution intended to prevent COVID-19 from spreading through Border Patrol stations. But the truth is, long before COVID, its use had been floated by Stephen Miller, a child's aunt to the prompt, draw Squidward from memory. In fact, the invocation of Title 42 was referred to as a Stephen Miller special. He was all over that, a sentence I truly hope no one has to speak or hear ever again. And Miller has bragged about Title 42's sweeping powers. The principle of it is very simple, which is that during a pandemic, if you come into this country... Your very presence here, if you enter unlawfully, is a threat to our public health. Full stop. You go home. While Trump claimed that the order originated with the CDC, one former health official said that they were effectively forced to implement it, adding it was either do it or get fired. In fact, the CDC scientist said there was no evidence Title 42 would actually slow the spread of coronavirus. But the reason Trump seized on it is pretty obvious. Under normal circumstances, migrants have the legal right to ask for asylum no matter where they cross the border. But like Incel Caillou said, <laughs> Title 42 gave the government the power to rapidly expel any migrant without giving them an opportunity to make a case for staying in the country legally, including to seek asylum. And you would hope that upon taking office, Biden would move as fast as possible to get rid of it. But instead, his administration has been all over the place. Just a few months into his presidency, his Secretary of Homeland Security sent this message to potential migrants. The message is quite clear. Do not come. Uh, the border is closed. The border is secure. We are expelling uh, families. We are expelling single adults under um, the CDC's authority, under Title 42 of the United States Code, because we are in the midst of a pandemic, and that is a public health uh, imperative. Except it wasn't a public health imperative and everyone knew it. And look, if you're going to parrot Trump's harmful talking points, at least throw in some of the funny ones as well. Every time you do a press conference to bolster some bullshit xenophobic policy like Title 42, you also have to go off on a tangent about how Robert Pattinson should have dumped Kristen Stewart. <laughs> it is the least that you can do. For months afterward, the Biden administration let the policy stand and even at one point defended it in court. Then, to be fair... They did try to end it, only for a federal judge to block those efforts, with reporting at the time indicating that the ruling was met with a sigh of relief inside the White House. Moreover, Biden actually expanded who could be expelled to Mexico under Title 42, because while the order initially allowed the US to do that with migrants from these four countries, he chose to broaden it, first to include Venezuelan migrants, uh, and later to those from Cuba, Haiti and Nicaragua. And the administration will point out, and not wrongly, that they have issued humanitarian exemptions to Title 42. It's estimated that around 187,000 migrants were granted exemptions from uh, May of last year to just last month. But not only is that a fraction of those seeking asylum, 
The administration has been criticised for a lack of clarity and consistency in who is eligible. And in general, some have argued that there's been a pretty glaring discrepancy in who the country has and hasn't decided to allow in. At a migrant shelter in Tijuana, Mexico, claims of a double standard, special treatment for Ukrainians fleeing the war and being admitted to the U.S. I love that the government is helping them because they're, they're going through a really hard situation. But that's not what happens for people here. Exactly. We should all be treated the same, the same way. How do you guys account for the difference in the treatment between them and you guys? Racism. Racism. Yeah, of course. Racism is the answer to so many questions like why are some people treated differently at the border? Why did Roseanne Barr get fired? And why does your grandpa insist on pronouncing Kamala the way that he does? In affluent Mount Kisco, a New York City suburb, undocumented immigrants for hire. At the train station, at Henry's Deli, and at Neighbors Link, a nonprofit that serves the newly arrived. They line up at seven. Contractors, even just homeowners like Tony Archie, soon follow. Trees came down on my property, so I want to move the firewood from one side of the house to the other. And he's spreading mulch, a two-person job for which only one worker was available. He's uh, one in 17 of the hour today. How many hours are you going to work? Quantos hours? In the end, no deal. Pool company owner Chris Carthy, also out of luck. There's a labor shortage across the country. Even at Neighbors Link? I come here every blue moon to pick up those extra few hands for excavation, and we can't get anyone. And so the nub of the economic argument for letting some 11 million undocumented immigrants already in the U.S. remain legally. So let's just be clear that immigrants are coming to this country because of our thirst for this workforce. Carola Bracco runs Neighbors Link. They are taking on jobs that often complement the workforce that was born in this country because of the fact that they're willing to do these jobs. Jobs in agriculture, construction, landscaping, cleaning. And who's bussing tables at restaurants, washing dishes, cooking? This is the April with the logo. This man, whom we've decided not to name, has worked in restaurants for 20 years since slipping across the desert from Mexico. A couple of restaurants in Manhattan. Also, uh, I used to work in the airport, JFK. Catering for American Airlines. In 2008, he moved up to Trump National Westchester Golf Club. Were there many other undocumented people in the club? A lot. I would say 30% of the employees, maybe. Maybe more. In the grounds, kitchen, waste stuff, maintenance, we're pretty much all over the club, illegal people. Did people know that you were undocumented? The people who hired you? Yeah. Yeah, they know. How do you know they know? This is the card that I told me that it's too fake for uh, accepted. How could they not have known, he says, given that they noted the obvious inauthenticity of his ID? So I got to get another one. I got to spend another $45. Both bought on the street from people hawking fake IDs. All you have to give is uh, the picture and they do the rest. Now, this man lost his job at Trump National Westchester in 2019 after news reports that the club had hired undocumented immigrants. At the time, Eric Trump said the company planned to check workers' status in the future. But in his decade at the club, this worker had risen to banquet chef 
selfieing with the likes of baseball legends Pedro Martinez and Mariano Rivera, and earning as much as $70,000 a year between the club and odd winter jobs. Couldn't they have found citizens to work for that kind of money? I guess now, because it was days that I started six in the morning and, and uh, I was in the club until like midnight, nonstop. So I guess not everybody do that. And sometimes I was mad, of course, because this is too much. But at the same time, I feel like I got my hands tied. If I say something, they might be fire me. They might say something, you know, to the authorities, uh, the you know, ICE in this case. Because you're always at risk, yes? Yes, yes. We are in risk every day. So, economic argument number one. The undocumented do jobs nobody else will. Okay, another point. Somewhere between 50 and 75% of undocumented workers pay taxes, says the nonpartisan Congressional Budget Office. Oh, God, uh, all the taxes that I've been paying since I'm in this country, since 2002 until 2020. I got to pay taxes like a normal person, like a uh, person with uh, documents. So they contribute to the economy in production and in taxes, which pay for benefits that the undocumented can't always use. Medicare, uh, Section 8, they don't qualify for food stamps, a whole variety of services that they don't qualify for. Undocumented immigrants provide yet another economic advantage for those worried about Social Security's finances. So you paid Social Security? Yes, every single year, since day one. Will you get Social Security when you get older? I don't think so, because, you know, no documents, no Social Security. There is a large fund that the Social Security Administration has that are benefits that will never be paid out to the people that paid the funds in. So that's pretty much the case for legalizing the undocumented. The case against? Illegal immigrants clearly cost taxpayers far more in benefits than they pay in taxes. Isn't it time for Washington to prioritize the American people? Dan Stein, who runs the Federation for American Immigration Reform, insists that the undocumented do not pay for themselves. When you consider, for example, the social safety net, the cost of the social safety net, education, public schooling, Worse still, he says, they drive down wages. The percent of Americans in the labor force is at an all-time low. One of the reasons is systemic illegal immigration. Employers prefer to hire illegal immigrants over American citizens because they're pliable. They'll do menial jobs for very low wages. They prefer them. But I talk to employers all over the country, and they say we cannot find people to do the jobs we need to have done. That's not true. Employers are constantly crying that they have a labor shortage. Why? Because employers like the labor market dynamics of hiring illegal labor. That puts Stein's argument to Carola Bracco of Neighbors Link. Isn't there a good argument that undocumented immigrants drive down wages? Wage theft is actually the big issue as it relates to undocumented immigrants. But regardless, she says... If there weren't undocumented immigrants doing this work, employers wouldn't be able to find anybody to do that work. And if you deported them... You would find a significant reduction in our economy. What we've basically done is created a second-class citizen that is uh, ripe for abuse and exploitation. I think we need to rectify that issue and bring in immigration reform.
our ad system respects your privacy, but if you'd like to get rid of them entirely, we would love to have you as a member of the show. All of us here that have been working so closely with the migrant community since 2017, many of us, um, are heartbroken to date. Um, this certainly is a, I can only describe it as a hate crime. It was motivated by hate. Um, it has been, of course, fomented for a long time by the right wing and especially during the Trump administration. Um, these people had made it from Venezuela and other countries all the way across Mexico, which is a horrific journey, um, and managed to make it to the border. I work on the Reynosa side, Matamoros side, and have since 2017. And I would say close to 100% of the people I have interviewed have suffered either a rape, a vicious attack, a kidnapping, or worse on the way north. For these people to have fled Venezuela, made it all the way north, waited their turn, crossed legally across the bridge with the new app on their phone, spent the night at a shelter, and then were at a bus stop to go to the airport so they could reunite with their families at last um, and wait for the courts to decide on their immigration status, for them to be plowed down by a vicious American spurred on by hate, it's killing all of us, to be honest. All of us that have seen what they've been through, we've held their children, we've held their hands when their children have died, when they've tried to tell their stories. These are such horrific backgrounds that most of us are pretty traumatized too. And to have them needlessly and irrationally mowed down, literally, with an SUV, I just, I'm at loss of words. I wanted to ask you about the comment of the ACLU of Texas, noting the crash followed weeks of escalating anti-immigrant policy um, uh, that has been made by Texas lawmakers. And while the Biden administration considers imposing a new ban on the right to seek asylum in the United States when the Trump era um, Title 42 uh, uh, ends on Thursday. In a statement, the ACLU wrote, President Biden, Texas Governor Abbott, and other elected officials continue to spread fear about immigration instead of treating the needs of people crossing the border as a humanitarian matter. Can you talk about the context this is all happening in? Yes, certainly there's been a ridiculous amount of fear-mongering and villainization, politically inspired. Um, against migrants from the beginnings of the new migrant waves, you know, certainly starting in 2017, but even before. Remember, they're all rapists and murderers. In fact, a majority of them are families. The forced recruitment age by gangs in most of Central America, if your little boy is between eight and 10, they're going to come for him. One mother said no, and they chopped the child's finger, fingers off with an axe to convince her. What we have to understand, these people are not coming here to buy a fancy refrigerator. This is an incredible migration north out of desperation to save the lives of their children, whether from political violence or from cartel violence, which is now out of control. I note that uh, for Reynosa and Matamoros and most of Tamaulipas, the United States Department of State 
has declared it a category four insecurity. That makes it the same as Iraq and Afghanistan. When we tell people to wait in Mexico or go back where you came from, we're saying, why don't you just sit down and watch your children drop dead? We need to think about that. We need to think about it, not just legally, but we need to think about that in terms of our national identity. This is us, a nation of immigrants, but for the Native Americans. We're telling these people they should sit and watch their children die. Why? You know, Jennifer, you were um, responsible for the release of that famous audio of babies crying crying in 2018. I'm laughing only because it felt good to release that. But I think people need to see and hear the reality. I watched a, a short video clip last night of the scene when people were still lying on the ground, literally bleeding to death last night in front of Ozana. And it, needless to say, it made me ill. I haven't recovered yet, but it was not the blood and the, and the incredible scene of cadavers lying helter-skelter where they've been thrown through the air by the, the van. The worst was the soundtrack accompanied by a shadow of a man holding his hands to his head and screaming for his brother, no, no, mano, no, hermano, no, manito, no, no, my brother, no, no. But the tone of utter despair, they were just about to reach safety with their families, and now the young man is dead. Um, I think most people like to read statistics. They like dry press articles. If they, I invite any of them to come down here. People are pretty much scared to come down here now that uh, there was the shooting in Matamoros. But that's an hourly reality for all of the migrants. Someday history is going to show who the migrants really were and the fact that we knew perfectly well who they really were. Um, And then everyone's going to ask us, our children and our grandchildren, why did you turn a cold shoulder to them? This is a time for a moral and historical decision by all countries. Title 42 is just one of literally dozens of Band-Aid policies that administrations, both Republican and Democrat, have applied to the border since 9-11. That history is traced in the article uh, I wrote that you referred to. So, you know, under the Trump administration, which was really desperate to curtail the number of people requesting asylum, Stephen Miller, who was President Trump's chief immigration advisor, he scoured um, federal law and looking for ways that the president could bypass Congress and shut the border down himself. I, I documented this in a front page story in The New York Times. Um, he finds Title 42. He tries to put it in place initially based on small public health issues, outbreaks of things like lice and the flu. And White House lawyers tell him, no, you know, this isn't serious enough to invoke this public health rule. And so when the coronavirus pandemic comes around, it actually offers an opportunity to Miller. The Trump administration pushes forward Title 42 kind of under the guise of a public health concern. But it was really just an attempt to minimize the number of people seeking asylum. But here's the problem with banded solutions that cut off access to a portion of our immigration system, but not the entire thing. 
when Title 42 cut off access to asylum, illegal crossings rose really dramatically. They had been very low because prior to Title 42, most people crossing the border were turning themselves over to border agents and requesting asylum. So illegal crossings close. Now we have Title 42 lifting, which affords some people access to asylum again, but the Biden administration attempting to replace it with yet new Band-Aid solutions um, that I think, as you mentioned, are both being challenged in court and I think are just not going to meaningfully address the much more powerful factors, those that draw people to the United States, uh, are, are very significant labor shortages, um, American employers who are frankly desperate to hire migrants, and then on the other side of the border, factors like climate change, instability, violence, um, severe hunger that are pushing people to the United States. These minimal policies really are no match. Um, but in terms of the quiet that we're seeing on the border today, it's very typical for a, a surge in migration to occur right before a transition in administration or a change in policy. Those moments offer smuggling organizations the opportunity to, you know, basically start a fire sale and say, hey, everybody, you need to take our services because things are changing. And then the change takes place. Numbers go down. Um, this is very much typical and not surprising. And so that's kind of why I'm trying to take the opportunity to draw the conversation to our bigger immigration issues yeah and not just the border on a day-to-day -day basis. It's so important that you just explained it the way you did and laid it out the way you did, because clearly this is a, an issue that's been grappling, you know, multiple administrations, both Republican and Democrat. And it's notable that uh, the difference it makes when a candidate is seeking the presidency as opposed to when they're actually in office, because then candidate Biden was really campaigning harshly against Title 42. And yet here we are uh, two years into his administration and finally, you see this program lifted. I do want to play sound from the president, who uh, is under no uh, illusions that this this process is going to be without chaos. He addressed it and said as much just earlier before this expiration. Let's listen. So, but it remains to be seen. It's going to be chaotic for a while. And as an example, as I raised in the meeting, when they said, well, we're going to cut and no spending more money. What the hell happens? If you cut, are you going to cut people at the border? You're going to cut agents at the border? We, not, we need more at the border, not less at the border. So you're right to describe these policies as really, really Band-Aids. And what needs to happen is Congress needs to get its act together and on a bipartisan basis really enact significant change here. Without that, once again, we are seeing this president and administration taking unilateral action. Can you just explain for our viewers the difference? Because there have been criticism from both Republicans and, and Democrats uh, about this policy that has been introduced by President Biden looking quite similar to the policies that had been enacted by his predecessor. Absolutely. So I think one of the things that the Trump administration created, you know, former President Trump was so focused on immigration and immigration policy that he sort of made it seem to the American public like the president sets immigration laws, which, of course, 
is not true. So what presidents can do is issue memos, issue regulations that chisel out different ways in which the existing set of laws are applied. Uh, many times, you know, presidents, presidents will attempt to go too far, and that's what the ACLU, which is challenging the Biden administration in court now, contends. It's the same thing that they argued against ways in which the Trump administration eroded the asylum system. So the baseline, an important thing for people to understand is that the United States immigration laws are very outdated. They have not been updated in decades, and they don't address the current geopolitical realities. They don't address the circumstances that are drawing people to the United States, nor do they address those pull factors I mentioned earlier, you know, the need for migrants who, who you know, ideally would arrive in the United States in a safe and legal way. So we are in such a terrifying place here in Texas. This week, the state legislature put forward some of the most dangerous pieces of legislation on the border. And I think it's in part because the federal government has really done nothing but keep the status quo. Over the last few years or over the last decade, in 2014, I think, is when we saw a large number of unaccompanied children from Central America come to the U.S. And since then, the main response has been either to build more detention centers or to send in a law enforcement operation. And I think what that has done is just made our border communities, made our state much more normalized to that sort of approach. Our local economies depend on these jobs. The culture is setting in. People are much more connected to border patrol agents. When I go home in the valley, you can't drive through one town without seeing some form of law enforcement. And so it's a big, huge part of the culture. The amount of border patrol vans that I see, mm -hmm. the amount of law enforcement that I see, like you're going shopping or you're just going down a little like the commercial area or you're in a residential area, it is so overwhelming. Like you're surrounded by law enforcement. Yes. Right. I mean, that's that's so clear. My whole life, I have seen border walls rise. We've seen surveillance towers rise. We've seen more and more of these facilities in each of our small communities that have also grown with it. And it's become so normalized that people accept that this is the way it has to be. We don't question why we can't welcome immigrants. And so I think what that means is because of Democrats' complacency or lack of boldness or lack of a spine, the right has really seized that narrative, they've seized this moment to continue to invest in law enforcement, to continue to call immigrants an invasion, and they see it as a winning narrative. And so that's why we've had counties across the state of Texas, I think maybe more than 50 at this point. Some counties which are overwhelmingly Latino, but they're run by often um, white county commissioners. We've seen them declare disasters, calling immigrants an invasion, saying that this humanitarian emergency is something like a natural disaster. And the years of that rhetoric building and building with our communities buy-in to that this is the way it has to be. These are our jobs. These guys are good. They're my cousin. They're my uncle. Right. And not to interrupt, but the point saying it's like, yeah, that's, you know, working for federal law enforcement in Rio Grande Valley, which is predominantly Latino. Yes. Right. Those are the bet. Those are some of the better paying jobs. So we're patrolling against ourselves. 
Yes. The language being used, you mentioned the natural disasters. I mean, the amount of headlines that I see, you know, U.S. government bracing for Title 42 migrant crisis as if there's a tornado coming in. It's Category 5 storm. But the other part that I'm sure you're going to have many opinions and thoughts about given Texas, because I know this is a reality in Texas. When you talk about the cases that happen in Allen and in Brownsville, the right wing is quick to make the argument that these tragedies have nothing to do with white supremacy or being anti-immigrant because both the perpetrators were Latino, right? Yes. There are Latino there are Latino lawmakers in Texas, like Representative Ryan Guillen, who are pushing anti-immigrant legislation, not to mention Canadian-born Senator Ted Cruz, who has made an industry for his contempt for migrants and immigrants, like the irony of that. I don't want to get into that. And in the specific case of the Allen tragedy, the shooter had a patch with the initials RWDS, Right Wing Death Squad, which anyone who is a scholar of Latin American history or comes from Latin American countries, that touches a nerve. So that's your history. Talk to me about the myth that Latinos can't express white supremacist views, because I feel like that's just par for the course. And people, they shouldn't be surprised. Your thoughts on all this, Roberto, because all of a sudden everyone's discovering this. This is the new discovery. And like I said in my tweet, you can be Latino and a white supremacist. You can be Latino and anti-migrant. Your thoughts? Yes, 100%. Half of my family over the years, I've seen them go into law enforcement because they are the best jobs. I have an uncle who didn't finish college, but he has an incredible job right now through the federal government working for ICE. And I have watched as my cousins, I've seen how the culture, the compadre system within the agencies seems to really, it's like an echo chamber. And so I've seen cousins over time become QAnon conspiracy theorists, and it just blows my mind because I remember them completely different when I was younger. And I think that's a huge oversight that that leadership all along the border is missing, that often Democratic leadership are not realizing, I think, that they're funding their opposition, that they are funding systems in their communities. It's a feedback loop of creating more and more Latinos who are charged with separating other Latinos, who are charged with basically incarcerating kids. And there hasn't been critical reflection on this whole industry that is growing and that has been building over the last several years and decades. There hasn't been critical reflection in the mainstream. And then it becomes like an economic engine of the Rio Grande Valley. Yes. So then you have people like Representative Henry Cuellar, who is a border hawk because he comes from that world. I have a lot of friends from the area you grew up and your story is so common, right? You know, I got 10 cousins and seven of them work for CPB or ICE or whatever. Yes. And it's just normal, right? And and this feeling of, I still have hope in the Rio Grande Valley because I actually think it's the future of America, yes. right? I, I feel like that's where the real, that's where the real, like where the rubber's meeting the road, where you see it and you're like, wow, okay, this is the United States. Like this is where I think the United States should be in, in terms of understanding, you know, biculturalism, bilingualism, having a more global view, you know, growing up next to Mexico changes your worldview, right? When it's simple, it's just like, oh, I have family in Mexico. It's just, you know, it's a ride in and a ride out Sunday. So I think that's the part that people are missing about the Rio Grande Valley in you growing up and your experience and others. So as you watch this coverage, 
and you probably shake your head a lot as someone who has grown up in that area. What do people really need to know about that area that makes you feel proud to be part of the RGV? I think what has been, you know, what's sad sometimes is if I tell people about the area that I'm from, they may gasp or they may say, oh, you know, how, oh, I'm so sorry. And what I know is that even in a humanitarian emergency, what's been really beautiful is just the strength, the level of dedication that Valley residents have given to these folks, the type of welcome. Yeah, There are people who have forgotten their history and forget that our families were immigrants. And the ones that don't, the ones that want to welcome, that want to honor their story, that understand that it's the most human of things to move around the earth. It's been so inspiring to watch people rise to the occasion all along the border, especially in McAllen and Brownsville and Matamoros. There are Valley residents that have set up schools to help children who are waiting outside of our ports of entry to make sure that they continue their education. And seeing that level of determination, in spite of all the odds, my home community is one of the poorest in the country. And despite all of that, many of us smile through it. We laugh, we do our, you know, we have our little, our Valleyisms. And that keeps me motivated, and I think that if my family can do it, then I can too. And I feel like they gave me so many opportunities, and I want to give back to my community, and I want to fight for what is right and what we all deserve. lot of stories lately about migrant labor, specifically child migrant labor in the meatpacking industry in the Midwest and in plants, manufacturing some very well-known products. There's also the horrific results of a 2021 investigation by the Department of Justice that found Georgia farms treated workers like modern-day slaves. All of this not only underscores the importance of your investigation into the H-2A visa program, but also the importance of migrant labor in feeding the country at all times. In fact, let's take a listen to this clip from part one that explains how vital H-2A workers were during the pandemic. When the pandemic hit in early 2020, when the United States closed its borders, there was one major exception. The U.S. not only continued issuing H-2A visas, it made the process of getting them easier. So they're going to come in. And they're going to be given a certain pass and we're going to check them very, very closely, especially over the next month. I've given the commitment to the farmers. They're going to continue to come. We couldn't eat without them. We still can't. It's been like that for decades, ever since the U.S. needed to address labor shortages during World War II. It isn't easy to find men willing to take on such undesirable kinds of work. Understandably, then, the American farm labor supply falls short and is supplemented by Mexican citizens. As we hear this, could you tell us, Fernanda, about the disconnect between the need for migrant labor and our disregard for the people behind the labor? Yeah, I think it's pretty clear after reporting on this for many years that these men, because they're mostly men, are not seen as people. They are workers. They're not fathers. They're not sons. They're not brothers. They're not human beings. They are a labor force. 
And I think that when you look at the pandemic, I remember I spoke with the vice president of the U.S. Apple Association at the time. And what they told me was that without these workers, everything ceases to exist. And that's because the U.S. has become increasingly dependent on H-2A workers. So the U.S. didn't used to be this dependent on H-2A workers as early as, you know, the early 2000s. But now we are. So when you close the borders and in the pandemic, when literally no appointments, nothing, but we could not do without the H-2A workers. So there's this exception to the rule and they start to expedite the visas. So instead of saying like, let's slow down because of the pandemic, it was the opposite. It was like, how can we get these workers here? Like U.S. farmers and U.S. farms were scrambling. They were like, how are we going to, how? We can't do this without the workers. And you would think that when you rely so heavily on a workforce, when these are essential to the true meaning of the word essential workers in our agriculture industry, you would maybe consider them human beings. You would maybe pay them what they're supposed to be paid. You would maybe house them in places where they should be housed, where like animals shouldn't even live. Like that's sort of the extreme that we're talking about here. We could not eat without them during the pandemic. And yet we put them in situations that did not show at all, not on paper with their pay and not in their work and living environment that they were indeed essential. Yeah. And we still cannot eat without them. Right. I remember as I heard the two parts of the investigation, you mentioning both the benefits and also the drawbacks of this program. That's clearly very necessary for the American people, the American economy. Could you maybe, Tina, break down the pros and cons of this program? Yeah, I think historically the program has really been presented as being mutually beneficial. And Fernanda did a really good job of showing, you know, that there are generations of men and families in Mexico who have financially benefited from participating in the H-2A program. And of course, it's good for American employers because they're getting their foreign labor workforce to do backbreaking agricultural work that many Americans don't do, which is why American employers have to hire foreign workers. But when we were kind of going into this reporting, we had a lot of conversations about framing, because that is the story that we always get about H-2A, right? That it's mutually beneficial. It's a win-win situation. That's the story that we often hear. And so kind of going into this investigation, we talked a lot about maybe flipping the script a little bit and talking about the problems of the H-2A program, not focusing on the benefits or that kind of win-win framing, but really delving into the injustices and the power imbalances and the kind of historically racist laws that shape how the H-2A functions and allows for the kind of systemic abuses that we kind of break down in the reporting, everything from, you know, wage theft to labor trafficking. All of this is enabled in agriculture because the standards are so poor. And in a lot of ways, the standards are so poor because you can kind of draw a direct line from slavery and anti-Black racism in agriculture to what is happening to our predominantly now migrant labor force in agriculture. I just wanted to add, I think it's important when we talk about the disposableness of these workers, it's important to think about history. Just for like a super quick context, during World War One is the first time that the U.S. does like a sort of doing air quotes, like official guest worker program where the U.S. talks to Mexico and like the two governments set up this program. They bring men to work the fields and then... When the Great Depression hits and the U.S. becomes like it goes into this like protectionist phase and super anti-immigrant, then it's like any Mexican, whether you were born in the U.S. or not. I mean, we, we know about the deportation or what they call the Mexican repatriation, where many of them were never repatriated because they weren't even born in Mexico. But this idea of like bringing these men, these hands 
these backs, these legs when we need them. Right. And then when we don't, or if we don't like, if we are feeling like we don't want immigrants or we're going through a bad time as a country economically, then they got to go. Like as if their roots, their lives, that didn't matter. So this was, you know, beyond H2A workers, but to sort of show how the U.S. has treated this. And then World War II happens and it's like, JK, we need more workers again. And that's when the Bracero program starts. And so there's just this really nasty history. This is not an issue that is just about the H2A program. This is an issue that goes to the core, to the core of how we treat non-white labor in this country. The history of humanity is travel, right? Mm. Humans migrate. We got up out of Africa on our hind legs and went for a stroll. Yeah. And we haven't stopped walking since, yeah. right? But the other history of humanity is tribal behavior. So you've yeah. got these two things hitting each other. Pulling up the drawbridge business. So the, the humans want to travel. We are curious. We are adventurous. We are opportunistic. We want to break out of the tyranny, many of us do, of our hometown, our home country. And we want to make a life for ourselves, this sort of idea of striving. Then the other side is we also like, as a social animal, to be quite tribal. Mm. And it's these two things are, are rubbing up against each other. But what I want to do in this podcast is I want to nail the idea, for once, that immigrants leech off society. Because that is the message that has been given to people. It's an easy message to accept. And if you look at the data... And that's the one thing about economics. It lives or dies by statistics mm. and facts and data and numbers. And if you look at the data, it is unambiguous that immigrants, maybe because of the inner fire in their belly when they leave their country, that immigrants change the host society for the better. And on an economic basis, every single metric is overwhelmingly pro-immigration. Yeah. So... It's important to actually come out of that. I was just going to say, just on that point, the very fact, the energy and the initiative that it takes to actually get up off your arse and go. And, and, go. and you go not to, not to leech off Nobody somebody else. Nobody goes to leech. You, you go for a reason. And well, the reason is to better yourself and, you know, you better the, the, the community that you enter. You're absolutely right. You're absolutely right. I'm gonna, we're going to come back to this. One of the statistics on that is welfare, tourism, John. Yeah. The European Foundation has shown, right, so one of the big myths is that, you know, people from Eastern Europe come to Western Europe because our welfare is better. And that is, you hear that all the time, particularly in sort of racist nationalist politicians. The data says the, op the opposite, that immigrants from Eastern Europe are far less likely to be depending on welfare than anybody else. But we'll go yeah. through the figures. But there is one thing to say at the very, very start, right, is that all of us Irish people have a brush with an experience of immigration. Whether unusually a wee bit like me, you're actually somebody whose grandparents... Bizarre decision to take to emigrate into Ireland in yeah. 1910. This is, not a, this is not the most clever move in the whole world, right? So there's some of us have that background, but most of us have the opposite experience, yeah. which is having gone to other places. So but it's not that we should be aware of our history, but our history echoes the idea that we were those people. And, and not only that, there's a great line in the Louis McNeese poem, Dublin, which is, I'll read, it's the, the last verse of the poem. It's Go one of it. my favourite poems. Fort of the Dane, garrison of the Saxon, Augustan capital of the Gaelic nation, appropriating all the alien brought. You give me time for thought 
and by the juggler's trick you poise the toppling hour. O grayness run to flower, grey stone, grey water, and brick upon grey brick. That's our city. That's Dublin. That's our city. Louis McNeese. Exactly. You know, and it always has been welcoming foreigners. And and I'm faking evidence of that, right? So let's look at what's going on right now. The first thing to point out is that there has been a very big increase in immigration in the last 12 months. So this is why I think these censuses are really heightened. And it's true. If you just look at the numbers, right? 120,700 immigrants arrived in Ireland in the last 12 to 18 months, right? And the reason it's a bit different is we've got accurate data up until April of last year, and then we've more sort of estimates, right? So that is a 15-year high. The last time that amount of immigrants came in was 2007, one year before the Great Crash. And they came in here to basically work on the sites. Yes. Right? Yeah, yeah. So that is true, okay? It's the second largest year of immigration in the last 30 years. So that is a fact. The country is now experiencing much more immigrants, right? The majority of these people, John, are came from beyond the EU or the UK, right? And that's largely from Ukrainians. So right. 28,000 Ukrainians came here from April. I think that's figured close to 60,000 or 65,000 now. So, I mean, if people feel that there are a lot of more foreigners here, it's true, there are, right? Yeah, and yeah, in yeah. total, the immigrant population is 13.8% of the total population, which is about 768,000 people, right? And that is set to rise. The Fiscal Council of Ireland, who do all the projections for the mm. future, they say that we're at about 13% now. The immigrant population will be about 17 or 18% in 2050. Okay. So that okay. is the background noise. So yeah. it's definitely happening. Now, the question is, for Irish people, is that we are the country that has done probably the best in the world out of globalization. Probably the best in the world. So in the last 30 years, living standards of this country have expanded dramatically, the opportunities, all that stuff. Globalization is a compact, which is free travel of capital, free travel of talent, open borders, and free trade. That's it. So that mix, whether you like it or not, has served this country extremely well, right? You cannot have free capital coming in, investment, multinational companies, all that stuff, and block immigrants. You just can't have it. Now, it doesn't mean you don't have an immigration policy. You have to have some sort of immigration policy. But this idea that you can actually cherry pick and say, we want that little bit of globalization, the one that's all the nice little, all the nice factories and Google and Facebook, we want that little bit, but we don't want the immigration bit. You Mm. can't have that because it's actually part of an overall package. And as I've always said, if we want to have a high-wage, high-skill society, we need to supplement our population with foreign talent. Now, we've done the low-skill, low-wage option. Yeah. I think the 1950s and 1960s, and it wasn't that pretty. So I think that, yes, there's lots of immigrants here. Yes, the figure is going up. But it's time now to nail this idea that immigrants are scroungers or in some way leeches or in some way dossers. Because, first of all, as you said, the fire in your belly, the type of person who comes... Absolutely, yeah. ...is a get-up-and-go type of person. Yeah. Right? They're, they're not coming. They're not coming to sit in their Swiss. They're coming to actually generate opportunity for them and their families. And actually, that's what happens with, with, with my grandparents. They came up, my granddad was a sign writer, had a little business, a little painter and decorated business. And then he phoned his cousins from Scotland and they yeah. came over. And so that's what happens. Yeah, right? yeah, so eventually yeah, yeah. you do build your network, you build your family, your family comes yeah. over, but somebody has to go in the first place to the foreign place and, and deal with whatever 
Yeah. And they they are they are definitely there's definitely barriers thrown up against you because you don't know. You know the way that people say it's not what you know, it's who you know. Yeah. Right? If you're an immigrant, much more likely you don't know anyone. Mm. So much more likely you start out and you're taught. You go into business on your own. This is why immigrants set up businesses. They don't set them up because maybe they want to, but they set them up because they have to. Yeah. Because they've no one to, look, don't worry, I'll phone Mick and he'll phone Tom and he'll give you a job or give your kid a start. Yeah, yeah, yeah. You don't have that. Yeah. So you actually are a complete self-starter as an immigrant. And that's psychologically a totally different, different place to be. We've just heard clips today, starting with Vox explaining the anti-immigration law from the 90s that broke the system. Last week tonight looked at Biden's policies that have insufficiently turned back the tide after Trump. The PBS NewsHour discussed the need for migrant labor. Democracy Now! looked at the violence that some migrants are attempting to escape. Amanpour and Company looked at the expiration of Title 42. Latino Rebels Radio discussed how fear of immigrants has become normalized. In the Thick explored the novel idea that migrant workers are also fully human people. And the David McWilliams podcast looked at the benefits of immigration through the lens of Ireland. That's what everybody heard, but members also heard bonus clips from Make Me Smart, looking at the new law in Florida that could bring much of the economy to a halt. And the law firm of Momita Raman had some helpful advice for any immigrants living in fear of the new law in Florida. Note that all of our sources, including the bonus segments, are linked in the show notes, so if you need to hear that or share it with anyone in Florida, you can find it there. Or, to hear that and have all of our bonus content delivered seamlessly to the new members-only podcast feed that you'll receive, sign up to support the show at bestofleft.com support, or shoot me an email requesting a financial hardship membership because we don't let a lack of funds stand in the way of hearing more information. Now, as we wrap up today, I just wanted to connect a few dots. And as I started thinking along these lines, I figured it would just be a a quick note. And now I'm starting to think that this is probably the seed of a future episode I'm about to describe because it is worthy of getting deeper into the details. But for now, let's just read a few headlines and some small excerpts from just the past few months. This is from the New York Times. Alone and exploited, migrant children work brutal jobs across the U.S., Arriving in record numbers, they're ending up in dangerous jobs that violate child labor laws, including in factories that make products for well-known brands like Cheetos and Fruit of the Loom. Then another from the New York Times. As migrant children were put to work, U.S. ignored warnings. The White House and federal agencies were repeatedly alerted to signs of children at risk. The warnings were ignored or missed. Also from the New York Times. Biden administration plans crackdown on migrant child labor. The move came days after a Times investigation showed children were working in dangerous jobs throughout the United States. And then on a slightly but obviously related topic, this is from the Washington Post, the conservative campaign to rewrite child labor laws. The Foundation for Government Accountability, a Florida-based think tank and lobbying group, drafted state legislation to strip child workplace protections, emails show. Very much related. This is from NPR, but you could have gotten it almost anywhere. 
Arkansas Governor Sanders signs a law that makes it easier to employ children. And summarizing a lot of this, the Gazette out of Colorado headline, States Relax Child Labor Laws Amid Tight Labor Market. And the excerpt is, Lawmakers in states such as Arkansas, Iowa, Wisconsin, and Minnesota say they are helping businesses respond to a tight job market. And then finally, going back to the Times, migrant child labor debate in Congress becomes mired in immigration fight. Revelations that migrant children have been exploited for cheap labor brought calls for action, but a partisan battle over immigration policy has complicated lawmakers' efforts. And an excerpt, Republicans have pointed to exploitative conditions at companies employing migrant children, documented in an investigation by the New York Times, to justify a hard-line immigration package. So what we have is businesses that are already employing children, often immigrants, illegally. And they're lobbying to make that exploitation legal, particularly in Republican-led states that can be convinced of such things if you say that it's good for business. And at the very same time, members of that same party are using the stories of that exploitation as an argument for their brutal anti-immigration policies that result in those kids and their families being sent back to a similarly brutal experience in their own home countries, as we heard described today. I mean, there's cynical, and then there's cynical. That's going to be it for today. As always, keep the comments coming in. You can leave us a voicemail or send a text message to 202-999-3991 or send me an email to j at bestofleft.com. Thanks to everyone for listening. Thanks to Dion Clark and Aaron Clayton for their research work for the show and participation in our bonus episodes. Thanks to our transcriptionist trio, Ken, Brian, and LaWindy for their volunteer work helping put our transcripts together. Thanks to Amanda Hoffman for all of her work on our social media outlets, activism segments, graphic designing, webmastering, and bonus show co-hosting. And thanks to those who support the show by becoming a member or purchasing gift memberships at bestofleft.com support through our Patreon page or from right inside the Apple Podcast app. Membership is how you get instant access to our incredibly good and often funny bonus episodes, in addition to there being extra content, no ads, and chapter markers in all of our regular episodes, all through your regular podcast player. And if you want to continue the discussion, join our Discord community. There's a link to join in the show notes. So coming to you from far outside the conventional wisdom of Washington, D.C., my name is Jay, and this has been the Best of the Left podcast, coming to you twice weekly, thanks entirely to the members and donors to the show from bestoftheleft.com. Mm-hmm.